The Real Estate Sessions podcast is sponsored by AdWorks. AdWorks makes digital advertising for real estate brilliantly simple. Promote your brands, promote your listings, learn more at adworks.com. That's A-D-W-E-R-X.com, adworks.com. All the people we interface with, and a lot of it now is online and texting, and there's a lot of stuff that's not done face-to-face. We help people that are out of state all the time buy and sell property that we never meet. But they're all still people, and they, they all have the same kind of hopes and dreams and fears as everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions, and join industry leaders as they share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. For episode 48, I am pleased to welcome Nick Crowder of the Cell PDX team in Portland, Oregon. Nick is also the author of The Golden Handoff, How to Buy and Sell a Real Estate Agent's Business. This book also just received from the National Association of Real Estate Editors the Bronze Award in the Robert Bruss Real Estate Book Competition. Nick has an interesting story to share, as many of our guests do, regarding his journey from school to the real estate business. Nick, welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Are you originally from Portland? I grew up in a small town called Nevada City, California, which is in the foothills between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. Um, great place to grow up. My parents had a couple acres, so did a lot. Of, I did a lot more gardening than I wanted to at that age, um, but got also to mountain bike and ride around and played every sport every season. And uh, when I finished high school, moved off to San Francisco, uh, where I studied marketing and music at SF State. Okay. Loved living in San Francisco. Worked in radio and started managing bands. I kind of got a specialty degree in music business, which was a combination of marketing, um, music history and theory, and then actual uh, music business night classes I took while I was still an undergrad, and got a job at a radio station, started managing some friends' bands, and then from that built that into an actual management company, and uh, traveled all over the world, had a really good time. I'd say it's probably the best job to have in your 20s, but the worst job to have in your 40s. So. Uh, moved to Portland in 2005. Basically, I realized I wanted to move on from the music business and keep music in my life. I'm a musician. I play guitar and sing, and I've done a couple albums, but I didn't want to worry about the business part of it um, anymore. I didn't want it to be my income. And moved to Portland because I had a girl I'd known uh, for a long time and we got real serious. She was living up here at the time and I was ready to leave San Francisco. So I found myself in Portland kind of at a crossroads and on the advice of some friends and family, like many people, uh, got into real estate thinking I would, I laugh about this now, but thinking I would work part time and be able to travel and make a solid 40 grand a year and, and just have a great time. And I was surprised actually after I started that I, I really fell in love with the business. Um, like a lot of people that are starting the company or starting their own business, I was working 14, 15, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week for the first year or two. And not because I had to, but because I was really just loving it. And it was just, it was a really exciting time. Um, it was an exciting time to be in real estate in Portland too. It was our last kind of boom cycle. And that's kind of what got me here. That was 10 years ago that I moved up here now. Did your music management background translate into the world of real estate? Yeah, absolutely. I think that 
I think that a lot more carried over from that business to real estate than I expected, or certainly way more than other people expected. Um, you know, as a manager, your job is to relate to a lot of different people. You're negotiating contracts, you're negotiating um, operating agreements and relationships and partnership agreements. And, and so, and you're, you're you're dealing with a lot of different people all over the place. And if you think people are in love with their homes, um, people are really, really in love with their art and their music. And so the emotional stakes, I would say, are much higher. And it's much more difficult to be successful in any artistic pursuit than it is in, say, real estate. More obvious. I mean, literally, intellectual property is an idea. Real estate is real property. And, and I can tell you from doing both that it is significantly easier to help people buy and sell real property than intellectual property. I want to double back just for a quick second into the, the music management side of things for you. What was a, what was a day in the life of, of a touring band like? Can you kind of give us a little insight into that? Um, maybe in Europe, I don't know, maybe you were in Germany? <laughs> I never made it to Germany. We oh, okay. toured to the UK a couple times and, and all over the country. So... Um, the day in the life, it, you know, for me, um, I started managing bands while I was still in school, and then I was working um, in radio. And when you're in radio, and I was in San Francisco, that's market four, so it's it's a huge market for radio. And when you're the new guy, I think I was, gosh, 20 or 21 when I started working in radio, you get the weekend morning shift where you're just making sure everything stays on. Right. It's called a board operator. So I worked I worked the weekends, you know, the 5 a.m. Sunday shift and so I would go you know go to school three days a week I was working you know three or four days a week and then I would go to night classes and if I wasn't at a night class I was at a rehearsal with a band or at a show um, you know till you know from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. and then I was getting up really early to go to work on the weekends and so my, I worked I mean I slept very very little um, because I was doing three things really. I was working and I was going to school and I was trying to start a company all at the same time at the last couple of years of um, my college uh, career. And when you're on tour, I mean, it's a lot of waiting around for 45 minutes or an hour of action. Um, you tra you're, you're driving hours and hours between gigs. You've got set up, then you go try to find some place to eat. If you're not being, pro and if you're a new band, they don't give you hotels and food. Like big bands, you know, they get whatever they want to make right. them comfortable. But when you're a newbie, touring act, and most of my bands were new, it's a lot of driving around, lugging your own equipment, you know, sleeping. You know, some super fan comes to your show and then you go sleep on their couch and living on the floor because uh, you don't have the money for a hotel. And, you know, you do all this to play music for one hour and hopefully people show up in a town you've never been and, and enjoy what you're doing and, and respond to it and, you know, buy some T-shirts and some CDs, which go right into the gas tank of your van to get to the next town. So, wow. it's it, you have to really love it. I mean, it's certainly a passion job. I would never encourage anyone to do any artistic pursuit for the sake of money. Um, I think that you know you want to do it because it's what you have to do and that you and you love it. And I, for me, you know, I, as even as the manager of all these bands, you know, I didn't ever really make any real money doing that. I made enough to kind of stay alive and stay relatively comfortable. Um, but you know, the, the money in business is, is, is way, way better than in the, in the art world. So you have to really love it to, to deal with the amount of effort for the amount of reward financially. 
but the emotional work can be really great. Let's come back to the real estate thing. And you started off with Keller Williams, right? I did. Yeah. So I started with Keller Williams when they were really new in the Northwest. So my understanding is, um, in the United States, the last region they went into was, is, uh, Washington, Seattle, Alaska was their last kind of place they, they launched. And so our office, when I joined it had 15 people and I didn't know it at the time, but three of those were staff and six of them were owners. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> so I was, I was one of the, if I wasn't the first true rookie agent to join the company, I was one of the first two or three. Um, and you know, the ownership really took it upon themselves, um, to prove that this would work. There was a lot of, um, in the local real estate community in Portland at that time, there was a lot of doubt that Keller Williams would work here and because of the culture being so different than the culture in Portland. And so the ownership really put a lot of effort out to make sure that the, the agents there had the best education and training and mentorship they could possibly give them because they really wanted to prove that the model would work and that that idea and culture could work in the Portland market. So. Now, are you currently still with Keller Williams? I am. Yeah. We just yeah. opened what's called a, in Keller Williams lingo, a mega Asian office. It's, we have a branch office that's for our team. Uh, the team right now is, um, 10 people and we have a commercial division as well, which is kind of unique. Um, I transitioned from residential to, um, kind of mixed use to a lot of larger commercial and development work personally, as I built the team to handle, continue to take care of our residential clients. So that's still the, the majority of what we do is residential um, purchase and sale, but we do work with lots of investors and we're working with more and more builders and developers as the team continues to grow. Team building is a big part of the Keller Williams culture. Talk about the actual building of your team. So I would say if for, and I think this is true of a lot of people that um, have a lot of success as agents, um, a lot of the skills that make you a good agent could put you in a position where you're not necessarily a good leader and you're not necessarily a good manager. Um, and it is very hard to transition into, you know, going from having everything in your head because you do every single piece of the process and you know every single client uh, to, splitting up responsibilities and, um, and, and also as a team grows, you split up relationships. So, I mean, I've, I've had to build and rebuild this team multiple times. Um, this last iteration has been doing great. We went from, we kind of got stuck at 24 million a year. And this last year we did 40, we're on track to do 60 to 80 million in sales this year, which I'm really excited about because wow. to me, my big motivation now is not to make more for me. It's, to, I mean, our goal as a team is to be the best team in, in Oregon. And the first step is to be the best team in our office. Um, I'm lucky that I've in an office where there's really big agents. And so I mean, we have regional powerhouses in our office. So I've benefited from having mentorship and, and having kind of that challenge to look up to and, and knowing how much a big team can really do. Um, and we're, I think we're poised to be the number one team in our office. And then we can look at the region and then the state where we're going to be in the top, I think 15 or 20 in the state uh, here really soon. And that's just because of the quality of people that have chosen to join this team and commit their time and energy to make this work. But I wrote a white paper about our team and team theory. Um, and it's a free thing. I'll just give you the link. And if you could add it to your, 
um, sure description. Is, happy to. Yeah. Our website is sellpdx.com, and if you if you go to sellpdx.com/team, you can download that PDF about kind of our team and the team theory and splits, and it talks about the perspective of the team member, like what it looks like to them in terms of the economics and the splits and the responsibilities. And it also talks about from the perspective of the team, you know, that's paying the expenses and, and taking the risk and liability for everything. Um, you know, what, what it looks like from that perspective. Because I think that one of the things that a lot of people struggle with on teams is there's all these big numbers going around, you know, our team, I think, did $150,000 in GCI last month, and this month will be way bigger than that. Um, but we also have overhead of 20 to 25,000 a month right. before you start doing commission splits. And so that's what I think a lot of people, they don't, it's not that they didn't believe me. I've had some good agents that have left to go work on their own because they thought they could do better. And it wasn't because they didn't, they thought I was lying to them. I just didn't, I don't think that they really, and I'm pretty open books. I just think a lot of people don't understand how you could even spend that much money. Um, but I can tell you once you have, we have our own building now. We've got a pretty big staff. We're doing a lot of marketing. We have the best tools available, which are very expensive. Um, and so I want to make sure that my team has the best tools and resources to work with and our clients have the best tools and resources to, to utilize. And typically the best things are not cheap. And so when you add up, you know, a bunch of different systems and platforms and tools and resources, it, it adds up to a lot. And um, so that's why I did that white paper. And I think anyone that's considering building a team or is in the middle of doing that or looking at reorganizing a team even will get a lot out of that. So I would encourage everyone to, to check that out. One last question on team building. Do you have to look for certain personality types, certain traits for different roles within the team? So for example, are you using a disc profile? Well, I think for every role, the disc profile is going to be different, right? I mean, you don't want you don't want you know a receptionist with an ultra high D because they're going to want to move on to something better in two weeks, um, and they're going to be stir crazy. Whereas if you took someone with a really high S and C, and you tried to put them out there to working on commission sales, I think they would be it would be terrifying and incredibly stressful. Whereas to someone that has a high I and a high D, that's really exciting, and they wouldn't want to trade it for anything. Um, they want that risk reward, they want to push themselves, they want to, the chance to do bigger things, but knowing that they could end up doing nothing as well if um, they don't do it right. So I would say that generally speaking, you need to know what your team's identity is and what you think makes you different in your market and in your company, whatever you, where, however you want to look at it. Right. And so for us, we're very, very education focused. We're a referral based team, even though we're growing, it's still primarily repeat and referral. So, you know, responsiveness, customer service, high standard of ethics, um, people that are learning based, people that want to push themselves. I tell my team, I'm, I've been doing this 10 years and I'm still learning something every day. So if you think you figured it all out, you're wrong. Um, because if you, if you aren't learning something every day and every week, then you're not pushing yourself and you're not really being honest about it. So for me, everyone top to bottom, I want people to be learning based. Um, I want a really high standard of ethics. I want people to take accountability for themselves and their actions. Now, the personalities that happen in the team under that umbrella, uh, big picture is, mm -hmm. are all totally different. Right. Um, 
And that's good because not everyone, you know, not everyone's going to want to work with someone like me. Um, I talk really fast. I go over a lot of detail really quickly. Um, I, I generally focus more on numbers and emotion. So for some people, that's not what they want. Um, whereas Glenn on my team is, he could have 10 buyers in escrow and every single one of them feels like it's their only the only client he has because he never makes people feel rushed and he never um, doesn't let them talk about what they need to talk about. Whereas for me, you know, I, I struggle with having that kind of patience. And so it's good to have different personalities on a team because there's different people in the world with different personalities. And the more, the more players you have to work with on the team, the more people you can try to match up with the different clientele. Sellpdx.com is a great website and you really have some detailed economic analysis on there. And I'm guessing from that last answer that that's probably something that you control. The, certainly the team helps with some of that reporting now because we basically have, we have our own proprietary reports um, about sales volume and inventory by zip codes. And then we have a big annual report we've been doing for, gosh, four or five years now, I think. Um, this year we really expanded on it, and that was definitely a team effort. And actually, we even reached outside of the team. So I pulled in information from a really top-tier uh, apartment appraiser about the apartment market. Um, and we went into a lot more depth this year than we have in years past. Um, that's also on our website if people want to read their, those reports you're talking about. Um, it's under the resources page, and our most recent one is sellpdx.com slash report. And it's just a PDF. It's a free download. We don't even ask people to put their email in um, to get it. We just let people read it, and if they want to work with us, that's great. If not, hopefully they learn something they use in their life to their benefit. But, yeah, those, those are things that uh, – that's how I like to understand things. That's my – like I said, it's, it's a – I've realized – now, 10 years later, that that's also a blind spot to be so focused on the economics and the numbers because, at least in residential, that's not really why people make decisions in real estate. Um, for investors, it is. But, um, yeah, I, 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 and I do a lot with the media because of that, and that is kind of helped by my background in radio. I'm very comfortable being on TV or being on a radio right. show because I just I kind of grew up around it when I was – starting out in my career. So it's not scary because it's just familiar. And um, I think being able to explain your market to your clients, even if they're not that interested in it, gives you a lot of credibility and it shows that you have a competence that most agents never have. And I think that everyone yeah. should know their market, whether that is a tool they use with every client or not, I don't think matters. I think it's important to understand that so you can really guide people. It will definitely set you apart from a residential realtor uh, now that you're venturing into the world of commercial because that kind of analysis is required in the commercial world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of par for the course. If you can't do that, then you're not really having conversations at the level of your clients. And um, that's, a, that's a big problem. So, um, you know, I've been really fortunate to work with some really amazing, very experienced, very creative clients uh, who are most of them are developers that are at the level where they're doing really interesting, complicated, very elegant deals um, where they're bringing in resources and people from all over the place and tenants and, and finding, you know, a diamond in the rough and making something really cool out of it. And 
you know, having an influence on the trajectory of the entire city, then, which is, it's cool to be a part of that. Um, it's fun just to help people buy houses too. Honestly, there's parts of that I, I miss the day-to-day -day of that and the relationships you have and being a real integral part of the community. But it's fun to help someone take a vacant lot and build an apartment building or build a new mixed-use development and, and go back and, you know, eat at a restaurant that used to be a vacant lot. It's, it's kind of a cool feeling to be, uh, to play a role in that. That's great. You know, digging around a little bit, I found that you have a very interesting take on the word leads. Can you uh, enlighten us a little bit? Oh, I think you're probably quoting uh, <laughs> the, and gosh, I wish I remembered it more. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to have to paraphrase myself, uh, that leads aren't leads, that they're people with hopes and dreams and, and fears. And and that kind of came out of, you know, I, I started out in referral, kind of a referral-based business. I did the Brian Buffini stuff and still use a lot of those ideas in, in our business today. And um, and my mentors were heavily referral-based. And so I, that's kind of, that's what I was just taught to do. And, and it also just made sense and felt right to me. Um, and as our brokerage as a whole has grown, there's been teams that have come in that are very prospecting and marketing-based. And, and even for us, as we've grown, there's a lot of people that we help that I never meet. You know, there are buyers that, never sit down and talk to me, which, you know, was very scary when the con the idea of that being a possibility um, came up as, you know, we were growing the team, you know, it was really scary at first. And that's why you have to really trust the people on your team, because there are going to be a lot of conversations and relationships that you're not personally involved with. If you want to scale a team up to be doing hundreds of transactions a year, you're not going to be able to do every single one yourself. And you can't be in relationship with that many people. You have to count on your team to do that. And so I think as some people approach larger businesses and as teams get bigger or people are trying to scale up to do a lot of transactions, it can end up being just that. It can You can end up feeling like you just closed a deal or our transactions were good this month and really lose touch with the fact that, that those are all people, you know, just like us. And um, to not lose touch with how important real estate is for people and how doing a good job can have a profound positive impact on someone's future and their wealth and their ability to, you know, either have an okay financial situation or a really good financial situation. It could be as simple as a couple of words of advice or a little bit of more due diligence. And so, um, you know, no one's perfect, but I think that it's important not to lose touch with the fact that all the people we interface with, and a lot of it now is online and texting, and there's a lot of stuff that's not done face-to-face. -face. We help people that are out of state all the time buy and sell property that we never meet. But they're all still people, and they, they all have the same kind of hopes and dreams and fears as everyone, and, and just to not lose touch with that. As you're dealing with larger and larger numbers of people, that makes it much more abstract. Um, so that's kind of, that's my take on leads. And, and just just talk to people like they're people, you know? Just have a real conversation, ask real questions, try to understand, you know, what someone's goals are. Um, we'll put you, if you're an agent out there listening to this, we'll put you in a position where you're going to do much better than a lot of other people, and you're going to have clients that appreciate what you do much more. It seems to be a natural transition from your belief system, um, the way you talk about leads, into your book, The Golden Handoff. Where did you get the idea for that book? Uh, well, I'd love to tell you that I had this epiphany, but it was kind of dumb luck. Uh, 
the woman who shared the office literally next door to mine, I mean, this is for years we were on one side of, you know, on either side of the same wall in the office in the same hallway. And um, she's in the book, Renee. Um, she had come from the nonprofit world, created a very successful real estate business, just her and an assistant. She was doing seven or eight million a year, which, um, you know, was, was awesome for us, basically a single agent to be doing that here in Portland with our average price point. And um, she would hear me through the wall talking to clients, calling people back, answering questions, negotiating all day long. So she knew me and we were, we were friends and um, uh, I ended up hiring her agent, her, uh, sorry, agent, her assistant when she actually decided to go back to the nonprofit world. But so she told me she was going back to nonprofit fundraising because she had started a family and, and the hours that were required in real estate just weren't working for her. She couldn't do that and be a mom that she wanted to be. So she chose to go back to take a pay cut, go back to nonprofit the nonprofit world and and but she had this great business and it was all relationship based. I mean she was almost hundred percent referral. Hmm. And so she had a agent in the office who was new and it didn't go well. And I had offered to take care of her clients and I had no plan. I just said I can help your people and if they need something I'll take care of it and give you a referral fee and and so she had asked a new agent in the office to help out. It didn't work out. So six months later, she came back to me and said, hey, it didn't work out. Do you still think we can do something or is it too late? And I said, let's give it a shot. Let's let's put together an actual plan. And you know me. I'm going to actually call everyone. I'm going to follow up and I'm going to do my best to help your people. And so we put together a marketing plan and that became the seed of what the book is, which is about how to basically adopt an entire client list from someone. So think of people get hung up on the idea of referrals not being scalable because they think of a referral as one agent refers me one client. But imagine if one agent can refer you 500 clients, mm. I would say that's pretty scalable. Yeah. And all of those people come with relationship value and trust from day one. Um, they're not leads. They're not cold. They're people that already have trust and relationship with that agent. And so, we put together the plan and we were able to do a really amazing amount of business with her clients and they were happy and she was happy. We were able to send her quite a bit of money in referral income. And that was during the recession when that money ended up becoming pretty critical for a couple of moments in her, her life with her family. So she was very grateful. I saw that how powerful that was. It helped our business grow. And you know, that kind of was part of the catalyst of why I have a team of 10 people is because all of a sudden we had more clients and, very quickly. And we just took over a big uh, apartment business that we're, we're integrating right now. And we've got really big hopes for that. But if you do it right, if you follow, read the book and follow the process and you have a good dialogue with the agent that's leaving the business, you can do as much business as they did or more. And wow. I've done it over and over and over again. So if you meet someone and they're doing 5 million a year, you can count on, you can probably do 5 million a year with that book of business, assuming that they're primarily referral based. If it's all internet leads, I, I haven't done that. I haven't taken over a, a lead based business um, before. Um, but even then, I think if you can have a realistic expectation of what the marketing cost is and what the return is, I think you can still do very well. And um, so we've taken over six businesses now. And since the book came out in October and we've moved and started our own office and the team's grown, we're in a position again where we can start taking over more um, businesses and client lists and adopting more clients. And so that's going to be a big push for, um, from now through the end of the year for our team. And, uh, 
I'm really excited about that because it's a way for me to make sure my team has continued opportunity in any market. It's a way to help people that want to get out of the business but don't have a plan and don't know what to do and are going to honestly, most people, you know this, most people in real estate, when they retire, what do they do? They just walk away from their business yep. and nothing happens. Yep. And I'm here to tell you that those businesses are worth a fortune. Um, the most obvious example I have is a gentleman that took a year off of real estate to travel and we managed his business while he was traveling and we sent him $50,000 in referral income in one year. Yeah. It was yeah. a down payment on a house when he came back. And so that, that's huge to be able to do that. And if we continued to work with his client list, it would have continued to produce at that level or even more. What is a mistake you see agents making today that is setting themselves up for failure when it comes to a golden handoff? The number one mistake everyone makes is either not having a good database or having a database that isn't organized or isn't updated. And, and everyone's guilty of this. I've never met anyone that has a great database that's updated all the time. And I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure there's someone listening and thinking, well, I've got a great database. But I can tell you over and over, I meet agents that do 5, 10, 20 million a year, and they have really, really poor information about their clients. And so if you're going to do one thing, it would be make sure you take the time to keep either a, a simple database or a CRM, whatever you want to use. There's a bunch of tools out there. Make sure whatever you use can export to an Excel spreadsheet so that you can help kind of organize and um, manage it. And so that if you're ready to sell your business, you have something to give the agent that's taking over and adopting your clients um, so they know your client's names, phone numbers, emails, addresses, you know, if they've got multiple properties, where they, what the properties are, which one's the rental, which one's their house, which one's their office, um, and any notes you have about them, you know, are they a past client, are they a future potential client, are they an internet lead that hasn't panned out yet, so that the new agent knows how to organize them and how to, you know, how much energy and, and effort to put on each kind of category from your A-plus people down to your, your leads. Um, that is the number one thing I see, and that is one of the biggest hang-ups that people have. And so in the book, I talk about different tools you can use to help people build a database from scratch very easily. So I would say for anyone, get started. I tell everyone the biggest mistake I made is I was really good about working hard and meeting people, and I was okay about putting them in a database and staying in touch. And I'm better than most. We have a database of over 11,000 people, but it should be 15 probably, um, wow. honestly, because – there's so many people that I've met and talked to and had some kind of conversation at some point in the last 10 years that are sitting on an open house sheet somewhere in a file, you know, right from nine years ago. And that doesn't do anyone any good. <laughs> well, Nick, I, unbelievable information. Thank you so much for being here. We've got, um, I've had you over a half hour. I have one final question that I ask every guest and, and that is if you could give one piece of advice to a new agent, just getting started, what, what would it be? Well, I would say, you know, the first thing is to learn your business. And the second thing is to meet as many people as possible, provide consistent value and communicate regularly and ask for the business. So that's my, that's my secret sauce. Um, and I think that's the sequence that it makes sense to do it. So learn your business, learn how to do a listing, learn how to help someone buy a house, learn about your market. Try to meet as many people as possible, whether that means you're doing a podcast or you're involved in your church and community groups or Rotary or you know, whatever it is, schools. 
or you're doing open houses. I did a lot of open houses to meet people when I was new. Um, put them all in a database, provide information that's valuable and relevant to them. Don't send them, in my opinion, you don't send people, you know, coupons and football schedules and stuff like that because if I want that, I go on my phone and get it. I don't need it from a realtor. Right. I don't need a recipe from a realtor on how to make cookies. Like, just Google it and talk to me about real estate. Talk to me about, you know, and not just numbers, but what does it mean to me? If I'm a if I'm a homeowner or a buyer or seller, sure the inventory is low, sure the inventory is high. What does that mean to me? What should I do about it? And then just ask people for business. You know, who can I help? You know, are you or someone you know looking to buy or sell real estate that I can help out? You know, the mayor campaign from Buffini. That's a great one. You don't need to reinvent it. Um, and that's it. I mean, those are the steps. And most people don't show up on time. They don't follow up. They don't follow through. You know, the biggest negative you hear about real estate agents from consumers is, yeah, they help me do something and I never heard from them again. So don't be that person. Be the person that stays in touch and is a resource and is there to help them whether there's a deal to be had or not. And you'll do very well. Nick, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch? Well, I would hope that everyone out there would get a copy of the book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or you can go to goldenhandoff.com and I'll, if you buy it for me, I'll send it to you myself and sign the copy for you. And uh, we have a bunch of free resources on that site about buying and selling businesses and um, all my contact information is there. And if you have a referral in Portland, Oregon, um, reach out to us through sellpdx.com and we'll make sure we take great care of whoever you send our way. Thank you so much, Nick, for spending some time with us here on the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Great stuff and good luck to you as you move forward with your company. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Risser of Chicago Title, Arizona. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about The Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.